Hello and welcome to episode 393 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. With me is Ben Olson. We're the founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous, share news, or ask questions on our website, thinkinglsat.com, and you might find yourself on an upcoming show. Uh, nothing really going on right now. We're in a little bit of a dead spot in the cycle. There's nothing to register for until April 25th. You've got to decide whether you want to register for the June 2023 registration. You really don't need to make any decisions between now and then. If you're prepping, you just got to look at your practice test scores on April 24th and decide whether you want to register for uh, the June 2023 test, which is six weeks after that. Go to lsat.link forward slash dates if you want to see all the registration deadlines and lots of good stuff there. Ben, you put an item on the top of the agenda today. Yeah, Eric, I sent it to Eric and Eric kindly put it up here and had something to add to it. But anyways, <laughs> I have this thing on my computer that after uh, 25 minutes, it like throws up a block page and is like, okay, take a break. And... I just use it to keep me focused, right? Because I know I only have 25 minutes and it keeps me going. But anyways, this quote came up and it made me think of people trying to apply in the middle of the cycle or at the end of the cycle. And the, the quote is this. It's often attributed to C.S. Lewis. Uh, apparently, Eric found out that it's more likely comes from James Sherman's book, Rejection, which I've never heard of James Sherman, but... In any case, the quote is, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And the reason, so this idea, right, people get invested in a certain path. And it's like, you can't change how you got to where you are now. Like if you're not ready with your LSAT score, or you're not ready with your applications for whatever reason, you can't change that fact. But what you can change is what you do from this moment forward. It's almost like I've had this this um, idea. I don't know where I got it from, but sometimes we get stuck in certain paths or solutions to particular problems or whatever we're doing in our life. And imagine if someone else came in to a company, a new CEO came in. They don't have any emotional ties to whatever the company or previous CEO was doing in the past, Right. And they can just come in and say, hey, look, we're not doing that anymore. We're not doing this anymore. This is the direction we're going to go in. And sometimes being free of that baggage from the past allows them to do what's best. And But we don't need a new CEO. You can Anyone can decide now in this instant to walk in a different direction. That's the idea I got from this quote. <laughs> and I thought it was true. COVID, of course, gave us a stark example uh, in our own lives. I mean, me and you, I mean, Ben, yeah. when we were forced because of COVID to take our live LSAT classes online. Yeah. And then we just realized that it was vastly better, way more efficient. We can provide such better service online and it makes life so much easier for our students. And shocker, the scores showed that we, you know, like we're doing a better job of delivering our product online than we were yeah. in person. 
Yeah. But we would have just kept going down that, you know, we were working toward doing some stuff online, but it was never an online first service until it became an online only service during COVID. And now it's going to probably remain an online only service because we're doing so much a better job for our students after that reboot, starting a different direction. Yeah. You want to read this little bit from Eric here? Yeah, Eric writes, this quote reminds me of a story about ultra runner Scott Jurek while running the Badwater Ultra Marathon in Death Valley, which is apparently 135 miles in temperatures reaching 130 degrees. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, I don't even think I could just stand out in 130 degrees. I yeah. Would, like melt. But anyways, Jurek fell behind early and felt like his body was giving out on him. Not sure he'd be able to finish the race. He pulled over for a break and some aid from his support team. Apparently, while drinking his he- dunking his head in a cooler of ice water, he told himself something like, okay, I'm starting over. That shit is behind me. Now I start a new race. He ended up coming up from behind and setting a new course record. Okay. <laughs> okay. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. I mean, that the ultra marathoner bit, it's like, that story could just as easily have ended with him dying before he finishes the race. Right. (laughs) Like, Oh, I think my body is giving out on me. It's like, well, yeah, your brain is boiling. You probably should stop. No, no, I'm starting over. That ship is behind me. Anyway, I don't want to throw a bucket of cold water on this (laughs) exciting idea that you can start over. Yeah. Should we check out this email from Carl? Let's do it. Carl writes in with a subject that says motivation. Hello, Nathan and Ben. Would you mind sharing a recent logical reasoning question that you got wrong? While watching Jordan Spieth slice a ball into a bunker and recover for par, I realized that even the best players in the world make mistakes. This has motivated me to keep trying even when my shots don't go as planned. Similarly, I was hoping to find a motivation in hearing about how even you are occasionally challenged by an LSAT question. Thank you, Carl. Oh, well, shit. If Carl, if you came to any of our classes at LSAT Demon, you would see a struggle. I mean, me and Ben and all of our teachers are going to struggle on questions from time to time. I mean, we have a teacher slack where teachers post notes and frequently it's about, hey, guys, can I get some help on this? Or we'll even see our ask button team who writes written responses. They have a slack and they'll be like, hey, guys, on this question, can you talk to me about answer choice C? Because I'm having a hard time getting rid of that answer in a clear way. Um, or or Ben said this, but I don't think he's right. And uh, oh, completely. I'll jump in there and I'll be like, yeah, I don't know. Ben circa 2016 uh, got that shit. all fucked up. So yeah. And watch old <laughs> videos of us and you might see us explaining things in weird ways. I mean, that's why we have our explanations competing against each other so that the best ones rise to the top. Yeah. In the demon. Um, of course, we are occasionally challenged by an LSAT question. I can't share one on the show because of LSAC licensing concerns, but in any of our classes, it is, uh, yeah, it is very possible that you'll see us stumble. And I've even gotten teaching reviews before where it's like the best moments are when Nathan messes up on one of the questions and then has to figure out why he was wrong. Yeah. You know, that's so funny because I did a free class a couple months ago and really I felt like 
just took way too long to explain a game. I was, I messaged Abigail while people were doing the next set of questions like, oh geez, like that just took forever. And I was going in circles. And then that was the class that got the most reviews I've seen in a long time of everybody. Oh, that was so great. So helpful. And it's like, okay, maybe, maybe that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it is. Um, Carl, I would like to extend your, you know, golf analogy a little bit there. Um, it is true of the best golfers in the world that they hit it like God. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. They do hit just an extremely high percentage of really good shots, mm -hmm. but they also have incredible recovery skills. And that's almost more, if you're like a halfway decent golfer and you go watch the pros, when you watch them hit it off the tee and just hit fairway after fairway after fairway, you know, they're just striping it. Right. Those guys like that is impressive for sure. But what's far more impressive is to see these guys exactly what you're talking about here, get it up and down out of a bunker. I mean, it, it's just nuts how good these guys are from the very worst spots that you can find on the golf course. Yeah. And they practice endlessly recovering from the very worst spots on the golf course. Uh, in LSAT mode, yeah, that happens to us all the time. I mean, I when I'm real aggressive about getting rid of wrong answers, right? So there's lots of times where I read the argument carefully. I have a decent idea what I think is wrong with the argument. I'm ready to go into the answer choices, but then I hate A, B, C, D, and E. I think that's the equivalent of Jordan Spieth slicing one into the bunker. Yeah. You know, now what do you do? Shit. He's up there. He's pissed off. He's probably yelling at his caddy, yelling at himself. <laughs> but now what are you to do? Okay. Well, you got to recover, right? And so to recover in the LSAT situation, it's like, well, all right, but four of these answers, you're going to be able to conclusively eliminate. I understand that you didn't like any of them on the first time through, but on the second time through, you're going to take them a little bit more seriously and now you should be able to suss out which one is the one. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's the equivalent of uh, Jordan Spieth making par from just garbage places. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, uh, Carl. I like that one. Next one here is from Tanner. The subject is another semester in school? Question mark. I'm currently finishing up my undergrad and plan on graduating in April in political science. My current UGPA is a 3.66, and I can potentially get it to a 3.7 with attending classes in the summer. Not if I you graduate. <laughs> Not, Not if you graduate. If you yeah. graduate, your GPA is going to be set in stone according to the Law School Admission Council. So do not graduate in April or file your papers or whatever. Yeah. I do think you can probably keep going to school and then file for graduation later. But if you graduate, that's it for your UGPA. Yep. I want to attend law school, a law school ranked 14 to 25th ish. Okay. Oddly specific. And I already plan on being a splitter with a GPA below the median and an LSAT at or above the median. Okay. Do you, do you recommend that I raise my UGPA over devoting time focusing on my LSAT to prep for fall admissions? Ooh. How much of a difference does a few points make if I am already below the median on GPA? Thanks. I love the show. 
I don't think it makes, let's start with that question. I don't think it makes um, much of a difference if you're below the median UGPA. I think you need to be, to go above it to make a difference. It, this is really where we go back to the loss, <laughs> the estimator and the medians. Yeah. Right, that's, that's where the most valuable information is. And look, GW is ranked 25. This correspondent, Tanner, is hoping to go to a school ranked 14 to 25-ish. So if GW so is GW is like the worst school that Tanner's thinking about. Yeah, so going from a 3.66 to a 3.7, I don't think is going to make a huge difference. But it might make diff a difference with other schools uh, possibly in this range, but maybe even just slightly below this range. And then, you know. I don't think anything. Well, yeah, this small of a change, right? Going from a 3.66 to a 3.7. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's not going to be transformative for Tanner's application. Mm -hmm. But Tanner, you're going to be on the bubble at all of these schools that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, like a killer LSAT makes you a good can't makes you gets you in the conversation. But your grades are worse than the grades at that school, and that's going to be an issue. And I, I'm i not willing to say that that doesn't matter to move up to a three point seven from a three point six six. I mean, also having straight A's in your final semester Could is help. the type of thing that might matter there. If they are concerned about your academic promise, they might want to see what you've been doing recently. It's just you got to think about what lawyers do and how how they argue and how competitive this is. And you're up against a whole bunch of killers who are all doing everything they can possibly do to make their application the best it can possibly be. I, like it's a kind of a lazy I don't think Tanner's actually lazy, but it comes off as kind of lazy, right? Like how much of a difference does this actually make? I'm already below their median. And well, he's probably being strategic, right? And trying to be smart about this. But. Sure. It, but it's like trying to be strategic, trying to be smart about it. Well, here, here's, here's, I think, Tanner's struggle. And that is Tanner is weighing three big factors here. GPA, LSAT, and application timing, right? Because Tanner says... yeah. Do you recommend that I raise my UGPA over devoting time focusing on my LSAT to prep for fall admissions? Well, when you give yourself that fall admissions deadline, yeah, then it's like, okay, well, do I dedicate this time to those classes over the summer or do I focus on my LSAT? Well, if you have a hard deadline of this fall, then uh, ideally you do both, but you don't want to do both if that's going to hurt your LSAT because your LSAT's going to be way bigger of a factor than those 0 0.04 points of yeah. your GPA. But if you let go of that timeline and just say, hey, I'm going to go for the 4.0 in the summer and I'm going to work on my LSAT when and if I have time after my grades, then you can do it the best way possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree that Tanner should be thinking about one thing at a time. I don't know that Tanner needs to extend his like college career forever past, you know, because like extending past your time when you're able to graduate. That's probably costing more money, right? Yeah. So like 
we don't want you to be donating more money unnecessarily to your undergraduate institution in just so you can raise money. your GPA a little bit to save some money in your law school. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that would obviously be dumb, but I totally agree with Ben. Uh, Tanner, you got to think about one thing at a time. Grades right now, if you're getting straight A's, great. If not, don't study for the LSAT at all. LSAT is the next thing. When you're thinking yeah. about the LSAT, you shouldn't be thinking about applications. You shouldn't be thinking about timelines. You should just let go completely of when you have, you know, I'm not taking, I'd have no official test dates on my calendar. I'm just prepping for the LSAT. I'm taking practice tests pretty regularly to see where I'm at once every other week or once a month or something like that. I got to, I'm accumulating these data points when I'm happy with my practice test scores, then I will start taking the official LSAT. I might end up taking the official LSAT three times or even five times before I'm done with the thing. Yeah. And then, you know, then I should be thinking about my applications. So, yeah, I think Tanner's looking at least two steps further down the road than what he really needs to be thinking. Yep. Thanks for writing in, Tanner. Yeah. Matthew says, how accessible is the demon for accommodated test takers? Question mark. Howdy, Ben and Nathan. My name's Matthew. I'll try to keep this brief. I love the mindset behind the LSAT demon and the thinking LSAT mindset with a capital M. Hmm. I'm a firm believer in the idea that no one should be paying such high rates for law school. I'm currently a senior at Texas A&M with an UGPA of 3.89. As an accommodated test taker receiving extended time and a written paper test, I want to know if the LSAT demon is a good investment. I'm unsure if I would get all the benefits from the LSAT demon if I were to use it and not be, quote, uh, simulating testing conditions when I would otherwise be drilling or testing on paper. I don't think the demon can print the sections or drills, so I'm unsure what to do. I'd love to hear what you both have to say. Best regards, Matthew. I don't think you need to do all your practice on paper. You're right. The demon does not let you print these things out, nor does that make it very easy to do because you'd have to stop after each drilling question and print out whatever question it decides to give you. But I think the most valuable thing for your preparation is learning the test, whether that's online or on paper. Do you, should you do a practice test on paper to see what it's like? Yes but you don't need to do it every single time. So you can do so much from the demon and the most important things, which are do a practice question online, then learn about it with our explanations or the ask button and get to a point where you're scoring very well and then occasionally take a test on paper. But even then you're gonna have to turn around and put all your results back in the demon so that you can review it properly. Yeah. The reason why we transform people's scores is because we help them to understand the actual underlying content of the test. I mean, we 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 teach people how to figure it out for themselves, which is ultimately what you have to do on the day of the test. You have to read it, yeah. understand it, answer the question. And our videos, our written explanation, our team of tutors that's behind the ask button all of those things are available to you in the demon. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be inefficient for you if you keep going from paper to digital to paper to digital. But apparently that's an inefficiency that you have decided is beneficial to you in order to be able to take the test on paper. <clears throat> the, un, you know, the extended time is undeniably valuable. Uh, 
uh, taking it on paper seems worse to me, on, but you have that accommodation for you. So whatever, if it's actually better for you for whatever reason to take it on paper, then fine. But you're not going to find better prep than LSAT Demon, even if you are taking it on paper. I mean, it just you're not going to find you like us, right, Matthew? I mean, you say you you love the mindset. Well, if you love the mindset, if you if you like the way we talk about the test, then yes, you should be prepping in the LSAT Demon because we're going to talk about the test in the same way that we talk to you here on the podcast. Yep. And just go on to Amazon and search for, uh, what are those books called again? The prep test? 10 actual 10? official oh, prep yeah, tests. 10 go. actual official LSAT prep tests is yep. the title of those books. You can get the most recent ones. Yeah, just buy that. If you want to get written tests. Yeah. And then you can do a section on paper every now and then. I, I really don't, and I, I guess I don't understand why you got that accommodation. So maybe there's something that we're missing here. But assuming that we're not, I would do the vast, vast majority of your prep in the demon online. Yeah. And unless it, like if there's something where you're going to have a seizure, if you look at a screen, you know, then, OK, that's then not going to work wrong. for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you can look at screens without having seizures, then I mean, I, I might. I don't know. I just I guess I would push back on the idea that a printed test is actually better for anybody. Of course, there are reasons why you might need to pay. Like, I, I don't know why you have that accommodation, but it does yep. seem like it's kind of a, one of those things where it's like just because you can get that accommodation doesn't mean that you should. Yep. The extended time is extremely valuable for pe people with, you know, neurodivergence for sure. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the paper, maybe the paper test is, too. But I'm struggling to see why in the modern world. I mean, are you really going to demand to have written paper everything for your whole career? Um, yeah, maybe you are. OK, <laughs> want to do this next one? Um, this is an ask button question from Abigail. Yeah. Hi, Ben and Nathan. In the RC Basics breakdown sentences video, Ben mentions that sometimes the answer choices can be convoluted. Would you recommend breaking down the answer choices for each question? <laughs> Yes, I, I watched a little bit of that video from you, Ben, um, breaking when, down when sentences. Is, when is it from? It doesn't look like it's that old. Um, yeah, I, we don't have a name here. This is just coming from a, a student on the ask button, I guess. Yeah. Would you recommend breaking down the answer choices for each question? If you mean by that, would we recommend that you break it down like read it carefully enough until yeah, you understand understand what, what it's, it's saying. saying yeah well then yeah the answer is yes <laughs> we we would recommend that you break down those answer choices especially the one that you're going to end up picking wrong answers we break them down until we realize that they're trash I wanted to say that exact thing because I don't want people to walk away from this and think, oh, I need to become an expert in the meaning of every answer choice. No, you don't. As soon as you realize it's wrong, you're done. But how do you realize something is wrong? You start with the first word or the first phrase and you understand that. I like to play name that tune sometimes in my um, classes. Mm -hmm. You remember the TV show Name That Tune where you don't No. No. 
name that tune was a show where they would give you like some trivia about a song and then they would say and then it would it would be like it was a bidding thing right so there was like a little sort of a story about the song that mm-hmm. might enable you to guess the song okay some clues hmm. and then the host of the show or whatever the show was going to play you a certain number of notes at the beginning <laughs> of the song. Okay. Yeah. And then we would go back and forth between like, I would go, okay, Alex or whoever the host is, I can name that, that tune in five notes. And then the, yeah. if Ben, you're competing with me, you have the yeah. option to say, I can name that tune in four notes. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they bid it all the way down to zero notes if they were sure <laughs> that they knew based on the clue, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. which case that was probably a bad clue. Um, yeah. Point is, I do this with answer choices in my classes sometimes where I'm like, mm. hey, y'all, answer choice C. Tell me how many words of that you needed to read until you knew it was wrong. Yeah. Yep. And that's a question that the people who are really getting it, I mean, it's it's kind of a little indicator to, to see how well you're getting it. Because if you can answer that question, and when you can look at it pretty clearly and go, oh, right there. Yep. So one, two, three, four, five, six words, six words. And that answer choice is wrong. If you can do that, then that indicates that you're really getting good at it. Because you can only do that if you know what you're looking for know what the question's asking you, know what the right answer needs to do. And then you read the first five, six words of an answer and you go, yeah, like you can't get there from here. That is not going in the right direction. That's a wrong answer. Yeah. Well, you know, you're onto something when two different people come to the same idea with from different directions, right? I don't ask that, but I have for a long, long time asked, What's the first word, which is essentially the same thing. What's the first word that told you that that was wrong? Yep. Yeah. I, it's I the think exact that's same what, question. It's just yeah. kind of framed a little differently, yeah. but yeah. And it, I don't even read the rest of that answer. Like, I don't care yeah. what the rest of that answer says. If yep. an answer is a little bit wrong, it's wrong. And I'm going to be real critical of the answer that I pick. I'm going to break that answer all the way down. I'm going to read every single word and I'm going to feel good about the whole answer. Not to say that I love the whole answer, but I understand the answer and I can see how they meant it to be correct. Yes. Where it's like, well, I wouldn't have chosen that word or, huh, that's interesting that they brought in that bit of it too. But, but that technically works because it's an umbrella term and it captures what exactly, we're looking for. Exactly, or whatever for. it is. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and the, yep, and I get it. That answer, I would be willing to stand up for that answer in court and explain why it does what we need it to do. Yep. The uh, wrong answers, I don't, I'm, I have no obligation to vouch for those answers. So I will frequently look at an answer halfway through and just be like, nah, you're not going in the right, it's not get. I don't even know necessarily what you mean by that, but that is not going to be relevant to answering this question. Goodbye. Yeah. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, You should break down answer choices far enough to know that they're wrong or all the way if you're going to select it as the right answer. I might even say you have to break them down far enough to strongly suspect that they're wrong. Right. The standard for getting rid of an answer is lower right. than the standard for choosing an answer. Right. 
yeah. because the base rate, the base rate is 80%. Yeah. Right. So most answers are wrong. Yeah. So you should be expecting them to be wrong. And you don't mm-hmm. have to necessarily be able to articulate it precisely, right? It's not like I'm not like on the actual test. It's like, well, I get a bonus point for telling them that after seven words, this is a wrong. You know, it's not it's not like that. It's just we're going to smoothly let go of answers when they seem to be wandering off in the wrong direction. We have to just let go. Yep. And uh, we're, we're going to do that pretty easily. And then it's going to be a lot harder to get us to actually pick an answer because that answer we have to be able to say, you know, we're reading all of it and going, yep, I understand every bit of that. I can't find a reason that makes that wrong. Okay. So that's the answer. Yeah. Aaron says need advice with substantially worse official LSAT PT 175 plus to 160s official. Hmm. Hi, Ben and Nathan. Thank you for all that you do with LSAT Demon. I've been a member for over a year now and have taken every single released test that you have on the website. I need some serious advice for future official tests. On my last 10 practice tests, I scored a 176. Every single time or (laughs) an average or what? What does that mean? I, heck, I've scored a few 180s in there as well. Okay, okay, so I guess that's an average of 160 on the last 10. <laughs> 176, yeah, on the last oh, Sorry, 10. 176 average with a few 180s in there, which means that there's a few 170s in there. Yep. But when it came to the official test, my January and February were substantially lower. I scored a 167 in January and a 161, yikes, for February. I didn't think I was rushing or trying to reach a perfect test. I was in a home environment with minimal distractions for February. I never really had issues with test taking. And through my undergrad, I got an UGPA of 3.89. I have no idea what it is I'm doing differently. And any words of advice or anything that would give me hope would be wonderful. Best Aaron. What do you think's going on for Aaron? Well, the 167 in January to me sounds like normal variance. Yeah, I get it that you're scoring an average of 176, uh, but 167 doesn't seem too crazy. The 161, uh, it seems like you were trying to do a perfect test, but you say you weren't. I'd be curious how Aaron felt about each section. Did, did Aaron struggle with questions? <laughs> As he was going through them, I don't <laughs> it's know. just it just doesn't like that just doesn't compute. You've scored yeah. a few one eighties, yeah, but then you just scored officially a one sixty one, yeah. How is that possible? I mean, that just doesn't even seem possible. Well, this is where I was lamenting the fact that the tests have not been released in so long. Remember when? <laughs> Every test was almost every test. There was one yeah. a year that wasn't, but every test was released. So you'd you'd see the test, you'd see what questions you got wrong, you'd see what you chose. But we haven't done that for a while, or LSAC hasn't done that for a while. I, I do want to know how you felt, Aaron. I mean, did yeah, did it feel the same? But I guess I also want to, you know, 
Have you been um, strictly timing yourself on your practice tests? <laughs> I hope so. I mean, Aaron sounds like he knows what we're going to say. So I'm assuming that that basic assumption hasn't been violated. But we've seen that before. People are like, oh, well, I gave myself an extra couple of minutes. And it's like, no. <laughs> Are they always are they always from the south? <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Do but, that? Uh, I don't know if I can do that again, but yeah. Um so yeah, I that that is mind blowing to me when people are like, well, I mean, I pause it every once in a while if I got stuck. You like, what no. now? Um I don't know, Aaron, you might need to write us back in and let us know how you were feeling. You say, I didn't think I was rushing or trying to reach a perfect test, but man, you were doing something different. There was something different that you were doing on those practice tests than you were doing on your official tests. What was it? Did you drill those practice tests before you took them? Right. Something. There's something there because it's it just shouldn't even be possible. I mean, a 161 is like good. You know, it, but some people score 161 as a diagnostic, right? With like not really understanding how the test works at all. They score 161. Somebody who has racked up, you know, <laughs> 10 tests with an average of 176. 161 and a few is 180s. A, that's a well, I mean, that does indicate that there's a lot of variance, right, in Aaron's record. Because the the few 180s actually, because it necessarily means that there were a few 170s to get that average of 176. Yeah, it's clear that Aaron doesn't understand everything about the test. And Aaron, you should continue to review your mistakes, obviously, and, you know, make sure that you're cleaning up those errors. But I yeah, you must have done something differently on that February test. What did you do the day before the test? Did you do something different the day before the test that you normally wouldn't have done before your practice tests? Did you do something different the morning of the test? Did you have special plans to celebrate on the evening of the test? And people do wildly stupid shit, right? I Like, I remember the guy who was like, his buddies were going to pick him up from the practice test, and then they were going to immediately drive to Vegas after the test. Yeah. And it, and it was like, wait, you're doing what now? Because people what? schedule flights, right? <laughs> it's like you have this in the back of your head. You got to catch a flight. What the hell? Like, right. No. Yeah. It, it's like it's a good day to take, you know, take the day for yourself and just not have pressures. But whatever you did that was different. I don't know, Aaron, you got to you got to diagnose that. Maybe write us back in uh, at our website, thinkingelset.com. This next email is from Owen. I'll read it. Good morning, Ben and Nathan. My pre-law advisor shared a link to some takeaways from a, quote, best practices for law school data conference hosted by Harvard Law that she spoke at last week. Okay, so your pre-law advisor is pretty active. It provided an interesting glimpse into the minds of some advisors, deans, and even the U.S. Secretary of Education on institutional values the role of U.S. news rankings and the importance of 509 reports and what really matters to prospective students. One pre-law advisor said it was a goal of hers to help students understand that it is not just about test scores. The pre-law advisor is saying that as opposed to the admissions officer. Okay. And that they need to create a well-rounded application for themselves that includes internship experiences <laughs> leadership experiences, and so forth? 
Uh-huh. Okay. My biggest takeaway was that in a 2,500 word write-up of a conference on, of maybe the conference on data and matters concerning pre-law students, the word tuition was absent and only, and in only one sentence was educational cost mentioned. I would love to hear your thoughts if you have any. Um, Owen, (laughs) I'm glad you picked up on that because if I were the U.S. Secretary of Education, the cost of education would be my primary and possibly my only concern. Yep. Except that's not how our government works, right? You nope. wouldn't be the secretary of the U.S. <laughs> Department of Education if that was because like, where do we get our secretaries of U.S. Departments of Education? Well, we probably get them from the universities themselves. And then they go into the public service for a while and then they go back into the private for a while and then they make a whole shit ton. You know, you go to work for Stanford, you make a couple million bucks, then you go to work for the administration for a while. And And while you're there, you do whatever (laughs) (laughs) your colleagues back at Stanford want you to do there. And one of those things is not fuck with high price tuition. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. These people are as gangster as it possibly as you could possibly get. I mean, these people are like, you know, it's funny because the people that go to these conferences largely are like not the ones who are really raking in tons and tons of cash. Although, you know, I'm looking at this, the photo here, we mm-hmm. have U.S. Depart- uh, U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona with law, Yale Law School Dean Heather Gherkin and Harvard Law School Dean John F. Manning. And it's like, OK, so, yeah, those are the people who like really just rake in crazy amounts of cash. Like th- that's just. That's fucking crazy. That's yeah. the that's the what's fox. their take home pay, right? <laughs> it's the foxes guarding the hen house. <laughs> yep. That's what it is. So. Yeah, I mean, they're going to make all these noises about all the things they're going to do. And they, they're talking about how it's a what did they say? Yeah, there's like very little content in this. whole. I, I skimmed through this article and there's just really not anything in it. But this guy Cardona, the U.S. Secretary of Education, is calling it a monumental step forward. What's the monumental step forward? Well, that's the. um some schools decision to decline continued participation in the U.S. News and World Report rankings, which they keep reporting it as if they're not going to be ranked anymore, which is fucking infuriating (laughs) because they are going to still continue to be ranked. You cannot opt out of the rankings. It would be amazing if Harvard and Yale could be like, we're not even on your rankings anymore. Like, keep your name out of our mouth. We don't want to be on your rankings. But that's not what's going to happen. All that's happened is it looks like 40 something law schools, which, by the way, there are 200 ABA accredited schools, Mm. right? Roughly. Yeah. And 40 of them have decided that they are going to not fill out the survey that U.S. News uses to rank law schools or uses to gather data to rank law schools. Yeah. What actual effect, Ben, is that going to have? None. I mean... Well, like we could start with the presumption that it's going to have none and then see what effects actually occur. Yeah. But this is a bunch of fancy people patting themselves on the back, talking about all the, oh, expanding access and blah, blah, blah. It's like, 
Lower your fucking tuitions. Look at this. At the very end of the article, um, it says, in his concluding remarks, U.S. Undersecretary of Education James Caval, apparently a Harvard grad of 2007, shared efforts being made by the Biden administration to tackle many challenges facing higher education generally, including affordability, student debt, and graduation rates. Okay. I'm, I'm glad that it's mentioned here, but it seems like that needs to be the focus of the conference and focusing on <laughs> rankings is a distraction. It's like, oh, they're the bad guy. Uh, U- U.S. Absolutely. News? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't catch that quite. But yeah, that is nice. It's like, hey, let's all join together and shit on U.S. News. We can yep. point the finger at U.S. News for a year or two or five or decades of pointing the finger at U.S. News like, well, U.S. News, you guys are the problem and we're not the yeah. problem. We're just trying to expand access and justice and blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, it's like, let's look at the fucking job outcomes. Let's look at the actual like, let's look at the debt loads and what jobs people are actually getting. Can I read to you, Ben, an email that yeah. I got just this morning from the UC Law SF Alumni Association? Yeah, go for it. Dear Nathan. <laughs> Each year, UC Law San Francisco students graduate and prepare to take the bar exam. In recent years, <laughs> graduates with limited financial resources have benefited from generous alumni donations that help them focus on their exam studies. Your donation today to our bar prep support fund gives them the support they need to fully engage and complete their studies. What fucking idiots donate to that? I agree that you're a fucking moron. I hope no one in like really you see Hastings law. I can't imagine anybody that I know. Look, I mean, I'm not shitting hilarious. on donating. If you want to help the world and you want to go give money to people. Great. But this is the least effective way to do it. Oh, I would go so far as to say this is anti effective. Yeah. You know, we have a quote here. The bar prep support funds that I received helped lessen my worries while studying for the California bar exam. Keeping stress levels low during exam prep was crucial to my success. I'm grateful to our alumni who supported me in this way. And it's like, yeah, it's nice for the student who got the donation from the alum. But let's think about what the fuck we're doing here. This is a student who is just like she was graduating from a law school, a school of law (laughs) where she was studying for three damn years in California and now 60,000 a year for that education, whatever it was. Yep. 50 something, 60 grand a year plus fees plus who knows? God knows what. Most importantly, she's been at a fucking school. For three years. (laughs) And then what's happening? The school is begging money from its alums to pay for her to take a class, (laughs) a bar prep class so that she could learn how to pass the California bar exam. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. It's just like, what? This is like total. It's like Twilight Zone or just the it's the weirdest fucking thing. Oh, wait, let me continue reading this email. Your financial support is used to purchase bar review course materials and pay for living expenses, including rent and food. This allows graduates to focus on studying full time. 
what the fuck were they doing for three years on your campus? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's a, such a, sh- it's well, a circus. It's a oh, fucking it's circus. It's hilarious, Ben. The, and, and, you know, the bar prep class is like, what is it? Like 10 weeks? Yeah. In the summertime, right? Yeah. 10 weeks in the summertime is what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. But that's a service that Barbary can provide in 10 weeks that UC Law San Francisco did not provide in three years at 60 grand a year. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just nuts. Yeah. And I, I, I guess if you make this donation, you'd feel good. But if you think you're benefiting the world, I mean, you're, I guess you're benefiting this one student while propping up just a fucking horrible system. I mean, ridiculous. It's, I don't see how this isn't fraud. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. But, but it's just like common knowledge. I mean, we saw it on our first day on campus, right? Like you show up as a one L and immediately the Barbary reps are there like, Hey, you're going to need to take a bar prep class three years from now so that you can pass the California bar. You can get get a a discount discount if you signed up right now. And we'll give you some like supplemental materials for your one L classes. There was all there was all kind of stuff. <laughs> it's mind blowing. I can't like, how is this not a scam? How does everybody not just go? This is. You know criminal. what it is? I know exactly what it is. It's this collective. It's the collective assumption that education is extraordinarily valuable and which it is, but not as valuable as people think it is. And the value varies widely from student to student depending on how much they put into their education and then this assumption therefore that the costs are worth it i mean i talk to people all the time family members and other people who when i throw out numbers like fifty thousand dollars a year they're shocked but also quick to add like well you know yeah but education i mean it's it's expensive like it's People will get jobs and they'll pay it back. And it's, it's just a collective lunacy, right? It's, it's like believing that the world is flat. Everybody. So when you start challenging that back in, whenever people believe that they think you're the crazy one. Look, I want to read a little bit more of what Caval says. That's the U S undersecretary of education. He added that rankings are in some ways, quote, distorting our efforts to try to build a system that is more affordable and more inclusive. No, (laughs) the schools have the right to set the prices however the fuck they want, and they can do it today. But what they know is that the U.S. Department of Education is going to make borrowing money super easy So if the price is high, people can still get the funds. If people couldn't get the funds, then they wouldn't be able to charge as much as they do. It's that simple. And the reason people are able to get the funds is because the U.S. government makes it super easy. Have you heard of PLUS loans? Yeah. If you're a parent, you can take out a loan against your house to fund your child's education, regardless of whether or not you have retirement savings. <laughs> it's insane. This, yeah, we, we have this 
monster. And it's it has nothing to do with public education versus private education because public education and private education in law school, they charge basically the same. So yep. what difference is it? So it's this it's this behemoth monster that has wildly inflated. They charge prices that are wildly above what ration what the market rationally would pay. But the the student loan system, it inserts this level of irrationality where the borrower, it's like you don't even feel like you're paying for anything. It's just easy credit. And so, you know, we got these poor kids and poor families coming into these schools, borrowing a lifetime worth of debt just for these very uncertain benefits. Yeah, well, it comes down to a kind of a defect, too, in the human brain, right? Kids can't tell the difference between a loan for $50,000 and a loan for $100,000. Right. But they can tell the difference when they're in the grocery store between a granola bar that costs $1.50 and one that costs $3. And they say, fuck that. I don't want to pay $3 for a granola bar. It's like, great. Use that same sensibility on a loan. But it's hard because the numbers are so big. You just, it just becomes a vague emptiness and everyone else is doing it. That's the problem is that you look to those around you and it's like, well, they're taking out these loans and the government is saying I could take out this much. And the school is saying, Hey, they might get repaid. So, okay, let's do it. Anyway, (laughs) where, where, what was this email about (laughs) this conference? I, I, I think, you know, if I could say something to, um, these presuming these people have any power, um, which maybe they don't because the schools actually have all the power and Mm. presuming these people have any interest in actually exercising whatever power they might have, which is probably zero because as we've said before, these people are all just super connected to each other, right? It's all just one gigantic industry. It's just this huge industry. It's like, there's too much money there. And so the, 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 like, you're not stopping that freight train really. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I, I agree. I think that our correspondent is insightful, um, saying, you know, they're just not talking about money. You're right. Owen, they're not talking about money. If they, if they gave any shits about doing anything sensible, there would be some discussion of, Hey, can we talk about our tuitions? Like, is it, there should just be a cap, right? On how much money you can borrow for education. It just doesn't, that that doesn't seem like we should be just blank check for anybody who any of these schools will admit. Well, there are these caps, right? But the problem is they're too high. So they give the illusion that that's an okay amount. What is the cap? I didn't think there was a cap. On well, how much can be borrowed. well, there. Okay, so there, there's, there's not caps on private loans, but you know the the federal government says, well, you can take out this much, up to this much per year or whatnot, and that can sound like a cap and like, oh, they're doing a good thing, but actually, what it does is it it sets this oh, benchmark so high. Yeah, that it's like, oh, well, I could take out up to that. So if I'm only taking out half of that, wow, look how good I'm doing. And it's like, no, you're still way over leveraged. For something that's highly risky. Right. Yeah. So the, the U.S. Department of Education needs to look at the investment that these students are actually making. You know, are you going to like, do you have a positive ROI expectation from borrowing 
$175,000 to go to UC Law San Francisco, is that actually a good investment? It's yeah. not. I don't think it it's is. Not. I, I think in no. the long run, I, I think it's going to work out really well for some people and it's going to work out fucking terribly for so many people. Well, and that just proves the high volatility and risk associated with this kind of investment. It's also astronomically worse than, have we talked about this? Like, um, it's non-secured debt, right? So if, if you take out a loan for a house and the shit hits the fan, you give up your house. You say, oh shit, here you go. You can't give up your education. It's yours. It's inside your head. And they know that. So student federal student loans can't be discharged even in bankruptcy. Yeah. We don't have debtors prison in the United States, but we do have potentially a lifetime of non-dischargeable education debt. It's crazy. The other thing that none of these people are talking about is what I think is the actual problem. It's not that schools are ranked. It's not that schools try to jockey up the rankings. The problem is that they are allowed to do two things simultaneously. One, they're allowed to have students who are there borrowing money while simultaneously letting scholarship kids go for free and even potentially collect a stipend from the school. I think that's what has really broken the system has, in law school. Yeah, has really pushed it exponentially because it allows them to s avoid the market pressures for those who are worth it. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, ideally, you just cap the amount of money they can borrow, but people would still probably go to the private sector. I mean, that's the problem. The problem is it's not that the schools are ranked. It's not that the schools think LSAT and GPA is a really good proxy for uh, ability or for promise as a law school student. Yeah. The problem is that the, the next step, the problem is that the schools are allowed to say, oh, you're applying with a 3.9 and a 175. Welcome. We would love to have you. And by the way, we're not even going to charge you any tuition. Oh, and would you like $10,000 a year? Yeah. As a stipend? That happens. Yeah. And it mostly happens to more affluent, wider people. Yeah. And for everybody that gets one of those amazing tuition scholarships, there are poorer, browner people who are barely squeaking into that school, who are borrowing full price times two because they're paying for the scholarship kid and themselves and they're graduating with a double debt burden. There's no free lunch. You can't give someone a free education and $10,000 a year in stipends and run a business. Harvard, Stanford, Yale, you know, the top, top, top schools have stopped giving these, quote, merit based scholarships, or at least they claim to have stopped doing that. They they claim to only give need based scholarships. And if that were the game, I wouldn't complain if if it were like, no, we're going to take the disadvantaged people and we're going to charge them less or charge them zero. I would have no problem with that system. But the, the, there's still the challenge, though, right? Because you don't know why someone is giving you a need based. I'm not saying it would be easy aid. to administer. I'm not saying yeah. that, you know, there weren't wouldn't be ways that the schools could still scam that. But the actual problem, as I see it, is that we are law schools are. I don't know. I can't believe I just said we because that ain't me. 
but law schools are charging less to better situated students. You come in with higher LSAT, higher GPA, more likely to be white, more likely to be affluent. And you're also more likely to get a scholarship and you're also more likely to do well in that school. If you come in with low GPA, low LSAT, you're more likely to be poorer and browner. <laughs> you're less likely to do well at the school and you're going to borrow the full cost of education, not only for you, but also for the scholarship kid. That's where well, the real injustice is in this whole system to me. And, and they're incentivized to do that in part because of the rankings. But I also don't see, I don't see how that's ever going to go away. Well, if this guy Cardona from the U, this is the secretary. We have the secretary of education is here at the picture, but we yeah. also had an undersecretary of education there. Maybe if the secretary and the undersecretary had any swing, they would go back to the U.S. Department of Education. They go back to the back to Biden and say, hey, <laughs> like this doesn't make any sense. Should we be letting people borrow money and then just hand it over to a rich kid? Because yeah. that's essentially what's happening here. I mean, they have to know that they have to. Of know course, that. they and fucking they know to, that. And they have to just be deciding that it's not they don't have the political will to do it, I guess. I, you know, it does seem like maybe Dean Gherkin at Yale or Dean Manning at Harvard, they might have the the will to do it just because they're kind of like ivory tower. Potentially, they might, you know, they're not the ones who are really doing the bad shit. In fact, those schools are doing potentially the opposite of that, where they're giving need based scholarships and they're trying yeah. to make this not be a horrifically dangerous, risky investment which it is at the UC law San Francisco's of the world. Yeah. So I don't understand why these highfalutin people don't just like drop the hammer on the rest of the schools and be like, y'all got to stop fucking around with scholarships with yeah. fake pricing. And you, you just like, we need to start charging a sensible, I mean, step one, we could just charge everybody the same price. Like let's get rid of scholarships, period. Mm hmm. Then financial aid could be like actual financial aid yeah. <laughs> or it would be like need based and means tested and whatever else. And then it could. And I have a feeling that if we did that, then tuitions, we just drop tuitions by 50 percent. Even then it's like, OK, so then you give out need based aid selectively. But the presumption would be most people don't get aid. Most people just pay the price, but it's a more reasonable price. And then you decide whether it's really worth it. Yeah. Like, you know, charging actual price. Yeah. Like transparent. Here's what you're going to pay. I'm noticing that the word transparent is in their conversations, of course. Well, here's another thing, too, is if if you got the federal government out of the loan program, right, and you let private lenders decide whether or not they want to make loans to people, they're going to make those loans based on whether they think they can be repaid in yeah. theory. Right. But in the current system, they don't actually care because the U.S. government, government backs it <laughs> is up. backing it's, the loans. I just heard something the other day that actually um, these lenders make more money when this is not true for any other part of the lending world. But they make more money when someone defaults because the fees continue to accrue and the federal government is making them whole for the amount that wasn't 
of the balance. It's, it's like all the perverse, all the wrong incentives. No wonder they're doing what they're doing. It's like irrational not to. It's an, it's an incredible handover. It's just a handover, right? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a government shocker. Government money is just sort of bleeding out into all of these institutions that now have a huge vested interest in keeping that the way it is. Right. And then, you know, (laughs) just reading some of these quotes, it's like in his keynote address, Cardona praised the school's desire not only to discuss the problems with the rankings, but also their commitment to thinking about what comes next. He said, it's not enough to abandon a broken system. (laughs) The real work is building a better one for everyone. And you're taking the lead on that. That's Cardona is talking to the schools, telling the schools that the schools are taking the lead on building a better system. They're not fucking building a better anything. This is <laughs> that's their system. This is so people feel good when they leave. Yes, this is we're <laughs> crying about the rankings and we're pretending that it's U.S. news that has created this system when in fact it's it's kind of like a prisoner's dilemma. Right. Because I think that these individual schools are just trying to do what they feel like they need to do in order to survive in the rankings. You know, like, well, if we don't give scholarships for LSAT and GPA, then we're going to fall in the rankings. I I see how the individual schools themselves are kind of trapped. But the problem isn't the rankings. The problem is the student loan system. But even... (laughs) Uh, trapped yes or no i mean they could i mean schools could decide hey well yeah i guess it's it's tough you need other people to go along with you i don't know it'd be tough it's they'd mess. be creating like yeah. a whole new category for themselves right where they were like no we're going to be the value leader in law school education we're going to be yeah. the costco of law school education the southwest we're going to intentionally yeah. charge less you know to deliver we're going to be fairer and everybody pays the same price. You you see you see the price listed on the website. That's what you're going to pay. You want to come here? Yep. Yeah, it's tough because people with higher <laughs> numbers are going to go to other schools that are going right. to give them scholarships. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean, because we keep saying it, we're going to say it at the end of this podcast, but we always say don't pay for law school. The reason why we say don't pay for law school is because this system exists. And yeah. so there absolutely are perverse incentives from this system because you got, you know, I'm madder about this than anybody yet. I am telling you as an individual applicant, you should go to law school for free because this system is set up to let people go to law school for free. So you should say, fuck you. I'm getting a scholarship. Like I can't afford to pay this tuition. I'm going to take a scholarship. And then that just, you know, in the long run, everybody doing that creates the problem. (laughs) But I don't know what to do without it. Okay. Moving on. Yep. Moving on. Thanks, Owen. Yeah, thanks a lot. This next email is from Anonymous. The subject is higher than median score. Hi, I just listened to your success story with Beth. That's demon teacher Beth. Yeah. Who went from a 147 to a 174. Shit. And you mentioned that if your LSAT score is higher than the median, schools will basically be, quote, begging you to come attend because you'll bring up their median. Do you think that that dynamic is still true, even with schools who have withdrawn from the U.S. rankings? (laughs) So there is no such thing as withdrawing from the rankings. We got to make that clear. And it's, you know, 
it's the fault of all of these journalists. Yeah. Yeah. They're just so imprecise. They don't they don't actually understand the field that they're reporting on. And so they just keep saying blithely, oh, and I mean, you probably get this all the time, right, Ben, from buddies or whatever. Don't people yeah. when they see you, they're like, so I heard law school rankings are not going to be a thing anymore. Yeah. And it's like, hold on. That's not actually what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, I think that this dynamic is still going to be true, even with schools that have stopped filling out the survey that U.S. News produces. Yeah. If they try to put their head in the sand, they're going to get screwed because <laughs> they're still going to be ranked and those are going to be huge factors in their ranking. It does obviously vary school by school by school. I mean, we we've talked about it earlier in the show that there are places, you know, like a uh, UC Hastings that seem it's, it seems bizarre to me. Like they, how stupid could you be to be denying people? <laughs> I mean, like. Is yield protection really like they're they're really toying with and, and that actually so that pisses me off even more, Ben. What? If you're doing yield protection, then you're clearly trying to game the rankings in a very sophisticated way. Yeah, because if you don't care about the rankings, then that would be manifest in accepting anyone and everyone you like. Because it would be better to take a chance that they would say yes to your acceptance than to turn them down. Because a no is a solid no. Right. But that is not happening at UC Hastings. I mean, they are turning down people that they like. In fact, it appears as if they're turning down people just straight up on the numbers. Because in uh, this is uh, for the academic year 2022, for example... They had 46 people who applied with higher than a 3.74 and between a 170 and a 174. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a wildly qualified student for a school like Hastings. That's a very qualified applicant. And Hastings only accepted 11% of those people. They accepted five out of 46 in a bucket of people who are clearly above their median in both LSAT and GPA. Yeah. And they said, we don't like you. We don't like you. Oh, you don't like me? Why? Because <laughs> I'm too good? It, yeah. And that's a what they're doing is they're they're Hastings is looking at you telling that now nah, you're out of my league. Yeah, you're too hot for me. I'm like yep. a six and you're like a 10. And I uh, <laughs> g- goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. And I don't want to work. I don't want <laughs> I don't want to risk you getting with me because there's this very good chance that you won't. And that's going to hurt my reputation. Well, that's the only reason why they would be denying them why is because else? it's going to hurt their reputation. Otherwise there's no loss. Yeah. It, if, if yield protection is a thing, and I mean, that does look like that's what's going on at Hastings. Cause why else would they only accept 7% of the people who applied with higher than a 175? Why would well, they only a- accept 15% of the people who applied with higher than a 170 while accepting 51% of the people who scored between 160 and 164? That's not holistic applications. That's like they're taking their best data point to indicate future success and they're using that data point to actually deny people. Yeah. Well, look, here's the test, right? Anyone could be denied for any reason. We don't know why they're being denied. Maybe they have a felony or something like that. But 
you don't need to worry about individuals. All you need to worry about is the percentage of people who are being accepted with lower numbers. And if that percentage is higher, then you know it's yield protection. Oh, but I mean, look down the right-hand column, Ben, of the Hastings. Here, I'll send it to you again in the chat. I have it. Okay. Just look down, look down the right, the far right-hand column is yeah. total percentage divided, just broken down by LSAT yep. only. Yep. And the very top, right, 175 to 180, that got you a 7.4% chance. Small yep. numbers, only 27 people applied, but they admitted only two of them yeah. in the very highest LSAT bucket. And yeah. then 15% in the 170 to 174, it goes up to 38.8% in the 165 to 169. And then it reaches its highest point in the 160 to 164 range. They're admitting 51.8% chance. As your scores go down, your odds of getting accepted go up. At Hastings, when you're, I guess, above their median, if you're like way above their median. I'm going to guess their median is probably 161, right? 162? Uh, Yeah, probably so. Let's take a look. See how well I can predict a school's median just from looking at this chart. Because it's like, you know, they do seem to be wanting to try to play the game. Yeah. Which makes Uh, sense. Their ranking has been slipping. Their their median is 160. Oh, shocker. Wow. (laughs) So they're admitting all of the people or like a, a... the biggest your biggest success chance of getting admitted yeah. to Hastings is if you're just right above their median. You know what? That's yep. the sweet spot for them, too, because if you're just barely above their median, they might be able to charge you full price. It's like, Ooh. isn't that the dream? Right. That's the unicorn student. It's like if they can raise my medians yep. and pay us, yep. that's what we really want. Whereas somebody who's way up there in the stratosphere, yes, you will raise their median. But I think Hastings has learned that those students are never going to choose Hastings. And because why would they? Yeah. Okay. So anonymous, everything will stay the same. (laughs) Yeah, we can rant and rave about this stuff all we want. Uh, Are we going to ever make any difference whatsoever? I don't know. Some little podcast. (laughs) Well, we're going to make no difference in the world, but we hope to make a world of difference for those who listen. Wow. That was beautiful, Ben. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's true, right? We have people emailing us gushing all the time. Like, oh my God, you changed my life. I never thought it was possible to go to law school for free. And here I am paying zero tuition. And yeah, we have changed those we have changed the world for those people. But as far as changing this entire big broken system, we've been at this now for 15 years apiece. We've never like from the day from day one that I came into the LSAT business, people were talking about huge changes and, oh, the they're going to get rid of the LSAT or they're going to get rid of U.S. News or they're going to get rid of, you know, they never stopped talking about how, oh, these schools are going to get unaccredited, right? Golden Gate in downtown San Francisco. Well, the ABA is going to take away their accreditation. I just like nothing but rumors constantly. Nothing but these big symposiums and conferences and fancy people in suits talking. And journalists you know, par- parroting their talking. 
but then nothing actually happens. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just had this idea, and that is that some of these industries get built up, right? And they're protected and um, by government, and government is being run by the industry, and that's why they're so hard to break down. But what I think, this is just my random theory, but I think these things break down when some disruptive technology comes along and just blows them up, right? So you can think about like telephone line companies that just controlled everything and were in bed with the Ma government, Bell. of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you have cell service that comes along and it's like, boom. And it's like, okay, actually, I don't even need a landline anymore. So goodbye. And so then now you think of AT&T or AOL and these companies, it's like people don't even know respect for them, right? And I wonder if something like ChatGPT comes in and makes the legal profession way more efficient. So you need way less attorneys. And eventually that just trickles down. It's like, hey, look, there's no value here. We just yeah. don't need high priced attorneys anymore because if anything, right, attorneys are language gladiators and these LLMs, these language learning models or systems or whatever they're called, that's what they're so good at. Not that attorneys are going to go away, but maybe so many will go away that it's just like, what? You're going to go to law school and do what? <laughs> It, it appears to me as if ChatGPT has the potential to just let one attorney who knows how to use the technology is going to do the work of 10 attorneys who don't exactly. know how to use the technology. Exactly. I and think it's that, just going to get better and better every right. day. <laughs> I, I do think that people need to learn to be AI whisperers. Um, I would think that as a first draft of most of your documents, probably you're going to end up looking to use some kind of an AI to give you a framework for yep. creating a document. And you're going to, you're going to learn how to manage these tools. And if you yep. learn how to run these tools, then you're going to be killing it. I think it might be a useful question, Ben, for law school applicants to be asking their schools, what's your opinion? You know, like what, what are, what, how is ChatGPT being used in your law school? Yeah. Or find a way to phrase it really neutrally to see what they actually think about it. Because I have a feeling there's going to be a hell of a lot of, oh, yeah, we have banned the from our entire campus, <laughs> right? Because fairness, right? So yeah, we're yeah. going to get rid of it, not allowed, ChatGPT not allowed on any assignment. Yeah. And I think that's the wrong answer. I think that yeah. the right answer would be, we have specific classes on how to use ChatGPT as a yeah. tool in your legal research. And ChatGPT is a baby, right? Like right. in five years, it's going to be running circles around all sorts of attorneys who are now going to be like, bye. Sure seems I mean, like it. I, I, I had a legal question the, like a week ago and I was talking to attorneys, but I prepped for that by asking ChatGPT a million questions and it just boom, boom, boom. And so then my conversation was 30 minutes as opposed to, who knows, a couple sessions. Let me help you get up to speed on what the hell is going on here. It's like, I don't know. It's already, it's already, and it's a baby. <laughs> it's already making a difference. Ready for this uh, next item from Jim? Yeah. Jim's subject says some blunt advice. Good afternoon, gentlemen, period. I'm a graduate of the George Washington 
University with an abysmal GPA of 2.6. I took a diagnostic exam today. Other than listening to your podcast, I went into this test with zero preparation. My score was a 146. 146 diagnostic, Ben? Very normal. Very normal. The breakdown is as follows. Reading comp minus nine. Logical reasoning minus 11. Logic games minus 19. Parentheses. I gave up on this section and didn't answer most of the questions. Yeah, I mean... You got four out of 23 points. That's uh, right at random guessing. So, yeah, like you 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 had 35 minutes to spend and you added zero. You didn't do the section. You. Yeah. It's as if you randomly guessed. Got it. That that just makes your 146 all the better. And this is a very common breakdown, right? Best section is reading comp. Mid mid section is LR and worst section is games. Yeah, I think that you're the perfect candidate for improvement, which let's hear James's or Jim's questions. I've always thought about attending law school. I work with and around attorneys in my current position, and this has only served to reinforce the desire. If I am to attend law school, I would not apply until 2024 to begin in 2025. This all sounds perfect. My questions are as follows. One, have you seen a student in my position break into the 170s? Yes. All the time. We have people who teach for us who Started in the 140s and ended up in the 170s. We so, just told yes. you about Beth, who had a 147, one oh, yeah. point higher, and went to a 174. <laughs> Literally, so, yep. the previous email was from a teacher, Beth. <laughs> I'm sorry, Beth. Uh, yes, Beth's awesome, and she improved by 27 points from yeah. mid-140s into mid-170s. Two, assume, oh, and especially for you, Jim, because you started so bad on the games, which is the easiest section to improve on. Yep. You you can perfect those games. You can end up you you will if you do what Beth did, you will eventually be minus 0 on the games. Yeah. Uh and and I would say that that's to get to 170s you that's like necessary. I don't see you get into the 170s if you don't get to perfect on the logic games eventually. And I know that's scary cuz you gave up on the section. But that at, happens at least all the occasionally, time. right? Like typically minus 0, you might get minus 1, minus 2 fine, but your norm is Minus zero. Pretty reliably minus zero or minus one, maybe. You know, I I don't, I just, you've got to learn that you can solve those games and you can practice the shit out of them endlessly until you can solve them perfectly every time. And if you're not willing to do that, then that's fine because that's just, you're not a lawyer. But if you are willing to put in that kind of grind to perfect this weird, arcane, you know, like it's hoop jumping, right? This is essentially what this is, is like the law firms filtering you in advance to see how much of a worker bee you are. Yeah, it's partially to figure out how smart you are, but more it's to figure out how hard you can work because logic games are like it's kind of like a novel legal problem. Yeah. I mean, every time you go ask an attorney a question, they're like, well, okay, let's figure it out. (laughs) They, They don't know. They have to research it. Yeah. Well, that's what's going on with the games. You don't know the answer, but yeah. you can figure it out. And so you have to learn to solve these puzzles. If you can't solve these puzzles, then you can't solve legal puzzles. So practice, get good. There's 400 of these games to practice. And yeah, Jim, you can you can definitely get there. Yeah. OK. Assuming I have success with question one, what are the chances that I will get a scholarship to a halfway decent school with my GPA? OK, so um on the scholarship estimator, that's lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships. I put in a 2.6 and um, 
I just put in a 172. Uh, the first full tuition scholarship I see is for Iowa, which is ranked 28th. I feel like we see full tuition scholarships for Iowa a lot. Must be really trying to. It must be really fucking cold and boring in Iowa. Is <laughs> the situation there? Yes, they are needing to try to attract talent with money. Yep. And not surprising, I see Arizona ranked 45, offering a full tuition scholarship. Um, you know, these are these aren't the top schools, but they're good schools. Yeah, it, Jim's asking for a halfway decent school. Well, yes, there are schools that are much worse than those that consider themselves to be <laughs> prestigious national universities. Fifty thousand dollar a year schools. Oh well, they charge Harvard <laughs> prices even at the very bottom of the rankings. Yeah. So, um. What's a halfway decent school? That's for every individual to decide. But there are many ABA accredited schools that would be willing to give you a scholarship if you break into the 170s, even with your 2.6. Number three, have you seen students in my position succeed or is it a lost cause? I know you guys, especially Nathan, are great at giving blunt advice. Let me know your thoughts. I think we've already answered it. Yes. It's not a lost cause. I prefer the word direct. I don't I, <laughs> to blunt. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do think you can make it. I also don't care at all if you don't. If you decide that perfecting the LSAT logic games is not worth your time and energy and, you know, blood, sweat and tears and you want to go do something else with your life, then absolutely go do something else with your life. But if you have this burning desire to practice law and it sounds like, you know, lawyers and you have some idea what you're getting yourself into, the LSAT is solvable. We can teach you that the LSAT is easy. So I don't think it's a lost cause at all. Matter of fact, yeah, you're exactly the type of person whose lives we change pretty regularly. Tack 20, 25 points onto that diagnostic. And yeah, you're you're going to. Many, many, you'll have competing, you'll have multiple competing offers yeah. uh, by the time you apply in 2024. And I love that your time, your cycle is you know, like, you've got it pushed out as far as that's great. Just work on the LSAT at your leisure until your practice test scores indicate that you're ready to take it officially. Yep. Last thing is from Reddit. Chat GPT scored a 148. <laughs> yeah. A student shared this with me in class yesterday. Um, I'm not super surprised. You know, we did a question that ChatGPT itself wrote and it told us the correct answer was like B or something and it was not. None of the answers were correct. Uh, it has a long way to go to perfect its mastery of accurate reading. <laughs> it reads like a lot of people do, right? I got a 148. That's a typical diagnostic score. People read stuff and they mis misunderstand things. ChatGPT is doing what the internet does, which is misunderstand stuff imprecisely, right? They don't quite exactly get what something is being said. But why doesn't will, it just look yeah. up the answers on the internet? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> they must prevent it from doing that somehow because, yeah. uh, because I mean, clearly all the tests and practice test keys and everything like that's got to be indexed somewhere. I'm sure that the LSAC lawyers are furiously trying to get stuff taken down, but you know, 
You're not yeah. going to take down like the entire internet in China or whatever. And so sh- surely all this stuff, you could just Google the answers for these questions. I'm, yeah, I, wonder I what suspect they did. it has to do with the goal directedness of the system, right? You tell it to do something and it has a way of solving that problem, but it is not intelligent enough to think of other ways that would be more effective, but not consistent with its programming. For example, go look up the answers. It probably doesn't even think to do that, right? It's like, okay, look for words similar or I don't know. I don't understand the technology. But anyways, 148, that's all. Interesting. Okay, uh, wrap it up there. Yeah. Remember, you can be LSAT famous. Just uh, ask us questions or share news about, uh, boy, all any of this stuff. There's, it's a lot of, it's always interesting to talk about this stuff. So let us know what you think about chat GPT and the whole, um, all these law school deans and U.S. Department of Education folks talking big about <laughs> a whole new system. Love to hear what you think. That's at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, please email help at lsatdemon.com and do check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 393 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.